Hey, Blaine from DTC Pod here. If you're an entrepreneur, you know how valuable the right support can be. We've heard tons about virtual assistants, but what about leveling up even further? Let's think about experts. I came across more staffing recently. They're not just about connecting businesses with virtual assistants. Instead, they focus on matching you with professionals from the Philippines. We're talking about finance, supply chain, operations, marketing, and others. The real kicker? More staffing goes the extra mile. They back their placements with a 12-month guarantee, and they even coach them for the first six months. This ensures you're getting someone who's not only skilled, but also integrates seamlessly into your operations. If you're ready to evaluate and transform your business, head over to morenow.co. Again, morenow.co. Next year's creeping up quick. If you want to skyrocket revenue in 2024, you need tech that puts you in the pilot seat. The new HubSpot Sales Hub will help you close out the year strong and kickstart your success for 2024. Teams can collaborate on every inch of the customer journey and keep operations running smoothly with a comprehensive prospecting workspace and powerful sales and analytics tools that keep data connected across teams. Speed up your workflows and navigate your platform with ease with the AI-powered conversational platform ChatSpot. And use AI Assistant to write copy, generate emails, and more. They'll help you whip up assets and execute tasks that used to take hours out of your workday. HubSpot Sales Hub lets you accelerate every facet of your sales operation with precision. And with over 1,400 integrations, there are tons of ways to mix in new features. So finish out Q4 strong and gear up for the new year with HubSpot Sales Hub. Learn more at hubspot.com sales. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're joined by Sam Lesson, who is a partner at Slow Ventures. Uh, before Slow, he was the head of product or VP of product at Facebook, which I'm sure you guys all know about. So Sam, um, and you've, you've done a whole bunch of other stuff in the space. So Sam, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you give us a quick little background about you, yourself, things that you've been up to and what you're focused on at the moment? Uh, I don't know. But I think you covered it. We run a venture fund, Slow Ventures, five funds deep, something almost a billion dollars of LP capital, a few billion of AUM. You know, we've been generalist investors, you know, as kind of the first check slash seed round in on everything from Solana more recently to way back in the day, things like Venmo, MakerBot, been around the block a few times, started a few companies, sold a few companies, uh, you know, was VP of product at Facebook, as you said. It's been fun. It's been a fun adventure so far. I love it. A, a little bit of everything. So um, I think I think Facebook would be a fun place to start because, you know, at DTC Pod, we obviously talk with a lot of commerce founders and um, Facebook has enabled commerce over the last decade, like, you know, no, no other platform, maybe aside from like a Shopify or a couple other oh, ones, but it's been, it's played, a Shopify. <laughs> it's been, it's played a huge, it's been, it's played a huge, um, so why don't you take us back to Facebook? How'd you get involved in the first place? What was, uh, what was the landscape like when you were working on product and yeah, just take us back there for a little. Facebook is awesome. I mean, again, like I, I, you know, was not, it was a week one user. I was at Harvard um, in the same dorm room as Mark Zuckerberg when he started it. Um, so, you know, we, we were not super close friends. We knew each other in college. Um, look, again, if you talk about like the interesting thing is I kind of had spent a bunch of time around a company called Six Degrees well before Facebook existed, which actually wrote Andrew Weiner is the CEO of that actually wrote the friend making bi-directional friendship patents, which eventually became interesting in the Facebook history. So I've been around that kind of going up and I, I kind of had a very strong sense of like how incredibly groundbreaking uh, it would be to bring people's real identities online and kind of network them. Obviously, I had no idea 
as did anyone the scale to which could get at that time. But it was, you know, I've been around it, you know, as a friend from the early days, ended up working there when they bought my company in 2010. You know, I ran identity profiles, a bunch of cool stuff, platform for a while, things like that throughout. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, you talk about things that fundamentally have changed the world. Um, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of startups like to talk about changing the world and kind of sell their employees on the mission of changing the world. You know, your DTC socks are not changing the world. Um, but Facebook did, right? And I think opening up, uh, there, you know, one of the many, many things that unlocked and created a real value on from a DTC perspective was, yeah, I mean, you know, historically you'd go to the mall, you could have so many options. You had to build things that were pretty bland for wide audiences. The ability to like deeply target small niche pop- populations, build products for very, very narrow verticals, and then reach those people and speak to them was one of the one of the cool unlocks of many um, that Facebook enabled. For sure. Absolutely. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about like some of the challenges that you had to work with and grapple with from a product perspective, right? Like at that time, like you're saying, there's so much data was coming online, like your whole internet profile, you were able to target people in a way that never been done before. So um, take us back to, you know, that era. I think you were there when was it like 2010? Yeah, to 2014. So what was that whole era like? What were from a product perspective, right? Like what were you really thinking about what were the hard questions that you guys had to ask I mean, yourself and what did you guys well one is a decade i guess it's a little hard to go that far back and two i'd say that that uh you know you're talking about years and years of intense product development when there's a lot going on you know scaling on product teams from very small numbers you know incredible amounts of depth and complexity so it's a little hard to answer that question at an overview level um you know i do think one of the things i always cared about the most in that era and still do is just look, in the end of the day, it's like, how do you do real identity on the internet in a trusted way? I mean, I think one of the big transitions we've seen, right, was the early days of social networking were about reality, right? They were about human connection and trust. You know, you guys are probably too young, but like in the earliest days, right, like one of the big problems that Facebook was solving was this idea that people were scared of their real identity on the internet. You know, they were scared to put, you know, who they really were and things like that. And there was what Facebook did is it allowed created a safe space away from the unwashed open web where people were willing to kind of be themselves, use real names, real photos, real friendships, and that was a huge unlock. You know, we're, we're back with you know in this era of you know TikTok, et cetera, back in fantasy land, right? Where like no one's a real character, it's all made up, and it's very entertaining, but it's very different than that era of social networking, which was a lot about the value being going away from kind of bland, you know, mass media content to like your friends being more entertaining than mass media content. Um, now we're back to an era where it turns out that actually influencers, professional friends, or even potentially bots are actually more entertaining than your real friends, right? And so there's kind of a cycle to these things. But it was a very interesting time. Or there's a dynamic where like people didn't want to upload their information then, and now everyone wants to be seen and discovered. So it's kind of like completely shifted in the sense where... I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I think like that, you know, in the end of the day, I mean, I agree... That the, the thing that's changed, I think, one of the things that changed with many in the last decade is, you know, the idea that your social capital was monetizable, right, was very abstract at the time, right? It was like, okay, like you had your friendships, your friendships were valuable, people invested in social capital, financial capital, but like no one was like monetizing their Facebook friend relationships. And I think what's happened to a lot of these platforms is people started realizing, especially, you know, starting with pretty girls on Instagram or whatever, that you can actually get paid for having a social media following, which then brings you in a very different direction. It changes the whole dynamic of what it is and what it's useful for and how it feels, right? Um, you know, when people are trying to monetize constantly. That, that, that's not really an authentic thing, but it creates characters, right? And those characters with niches can be things that people think of as work, 
right? Or they are their jobs. So, so in that case, like, so Facebook, for example, captured, I don't know, 80% of DTC brands, like marketing budgets through the ads platform, the DTC craze it, era. That sounds high to me, but it's a lot. Um, but I, I mean, a lot, it, the DTC craze era where companies were racing and just, you know, pumping it into Facebook ads, et cetera. And now, um, there is sort of another distribution play, which is the people with audiences and creators, et cetera. Um, how has, and I think you and I talked about this at some point, how has Meta not captured on this so much as like, you know, I think TikTok shop is starting to capitalize on it. Um, and you know, and there are no platforms. There aren't, re there isn't really a single platform. The TAM seems so big, but there isn't a single platform for creators that has grabbed most of this monetization and opportunity. Um, what's your thesis on there? Well, I mean, I think first, I think it's hard to say that companies like Meta haven't captured it. Like they're trillion dollar companies, right? That have done very well, you know, as people. So I think, you know, you might say that, sure, like, you know, there's there's a kind of brand deals that are now happening around them or to the side of them. But like fundamentally, these are all, all these personalities or characters built on these platforms. And I'd say that these things like Meta monetize the attention, which is what they have extremely well on this. I mean, look, there's been a lot of talk about how to do um, at, at all sorts of levels, right? How to do, you know, if you're talking about sponsored brand deal type stuff as a platform and being the exchange for it. Yeah, there's all sorts of talk about it. Uh, and like there's all sorts of startups. We've invested in some that I think do it. I think it's reasonable. It's a very opaque market right now, right? In the end of the day, if you think about it, if you're a, building a company, your edge in marketing is going to be that you're able to figure out how to use a bunch of tools or get distribution that is mispriced or otherwise hard to access. So in the early days of Facebook, you had all these kind of DTC people. You know, we were seed investors in Allbirds, for instance, is a good example, right? Like in BarkBox and all sorts of stuff, right? That basically understood they could target people on Facebook more efficiently and get low CACs, right? And like make it work. Once it got big enough, it got efficient, right? And so the hack there is not that it's not effective. It's actually too effective, right? I think with creators, what you see now is like, you know, you're saying, well, why aren't there big platforms for buying, you know, brand content deals with creators? Like there will be, and there are some coming. And like we were seeing, we've been early in like things like Pear Pop and like the people who mess around with doing this and will get there. But again, because it's interesting if you're trying to sell stuff and, it, and your context is DTC is by the time that happens, there'll be no margin left in it, right? Like it will be a bad strategy for you. You'll have to move on, right? Like what actually works now is that there are pockets where it's mispriced. You know? I'd say that like head influencers are not mispriced, right? The reality is, is like the really, I don't know, the, the, the Beyonce's of the world or the Kardashians of the world, they're actually overpaid relative to their value, right? Because they're easy to buy, right? Like you can just, you know, it's easy. Everyone knows who they are. It's, you know, so anything that's too big and you overpriced, I agree that the the long tail or the middle is underpriced in creator right now for distribution because they're hard to find and deal with. Like that is why they're underpriced. And the second that it's no longer the case, they won't be underpriced, right? Uh, so it is an interesting question. These things just keep evolving, right? So, so speaking of evolution, I think, um, you know, we had the Facebook product and then you guys made that great acquisition of Instagram, which, you know, as everyone transitioned to mobile, and shopping and like you're talking about the evolution of the audiences and how content was distributed that was an instrumental play where do you see social media kind of going from here like what's what's the next evolution is it tiktok is it another platform is it platform independent like where where do you see things going for the creator economy 
other thing you have to understand is that like what kind of like I think you can drop the social from social media. It's just media, right? Like TikTok is just TV, right? Like it's nothing else. It's like shitty low budget TV that's super highly targeted, right? And like it turns out that's really it's like great. It's a like, great crack, right? Um, and so I'm like I think you know, but in terms of the value chain and pipeline, like it's hard to call that social media other than unless unless social media just means media that the company serving it didn't pay for is not really what its original intent was right so fine like there's this entertainment and then there's like social capital and connection and all the things i actually care about in social media right and like facebook had for many many years early on like the actual who are your who, how do you stay up to date with people you care about and build relationships for the long term and stay in touch that's all gone into messaging products like you know whatsapp is like an incredible community platform for that right there are others like it um you know, so I think it's like an evolution in a lot of ways. But I think what I'd say is that unsurprisingly, there was, you know, in my early era of exposure to social media, like the reality is that the entertainment component, right? And then like the connection component, were all kind of the same platform, right? And I think what's happening now is that they're just going in different directions as they get more refined, right? Like, you know, TikTok is heroin, it's very high grade heroin, and it's like super refined. And like that just doesn't work in combination with real social capital and relationships, right? Um, they've become different products. No, I, I actually, I really like that um, comparison because I, one of the questions I was going to ask was like, where did where did we see the, almost like the breakdown of Facebook? Oh, I remember up until maybe call it 2015 or so, like everyone was using Facebook, 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 and then you started to see things disperse. And I think that's a, a really solid um, follow-up to where the attention went. Well, and to be clear, the, the depths of Facebook, I think, are greatly overstated. Like, people still use Ooh, Facebook a ship, yeah, 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 right? It's a huge platform, and, like, people are there. But I think, yes, like, if you want to understand, like, how these things have evolved, they've just evolved into more specific verticals, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And then kind of piggybacking off that, if attention and entertainment and personal relationships have kind of moved into their own communities or spaces where wherever those are, um, one thing you were talking about earlier in our conversation was in order to like really scale and find an advantage, you have to find things that are, you know, mispriced. Where do you see those opportunities uh, today within this kind of media, social media uh, creator sort of landscape? Well, my sense is the mispriced thing is still like the mid to long tail influencers, right? If you can find a bunch of people who are aligned with you that like, you know, and I think there's a lot of data that like is hard to get that helps you do that. Like, you know, I've never seen anyone give me a compelling view of like, how do you think about creator conversions in any sort of self-similar way versus just like impressions or followers? Like, look, a lot of followers are garbage followers, right? Like, how do you actually know who's valuable in your niche? So, you know, we're very focused. I mean, look, at my firm, we spend a lot of time, you know, investing directly in creators. So we'll buy five to 10% of a creator's holistic business, you know, you know, everything they do from a marketing perspective, any companies they start, whatever, on a long-term basis. And like, we're super into super high conviction communities around niche topics, right? So like we're not interested in the Mr. Beast of the world for the same reason we're not interested in Kardashians, right? Entertainment's super competitive and it's super overpriced. But like the reality is, is like if you find the person who's like the guru of Iowa chess, right? And it's like anything Iowa chess, they're like the most trusted person in and like Iowans who love chess, it's like that's all they care about is this person. Those niches exist and those communities are very powerful. I think there's a lot of opportunity for everyone. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned that because Blaine and I just recorded a podcast with um, this professional skateboarder, Mikey Taylor, and he was saying how when he started this brewery called St. Archer, sold it in three years for $100 million to Miller, 
And um, he didn't have a huge following then, but he had a really trustworthy audience in the skateboarding industry. And so when he sold St. Archer, now he started a PE fund and um, for real estate investing. He was like, you know what? I'm not going to sit around pitching big investors, having coffees. I'm just going to have my audience invest. And he ended up raising nine figures, which is wild. So how are you capitalizing on that with this structure? I mean, so like, let let me ask you a question. If you would have invested, say, 5% into that, um, into the creator and had these two outcomes, I think that would have been a pretty good return. But VCs need a billion dollar outcome, so they say. So how would this work and how does this model work for you? I mean, I, I just wrote this very long slide deck, which you guys can link to if yep. you want, that was pretty well received, right? About like kind of how VC is changing. I agree with you that the story has historically been for VC, hey, we need a cookie cutter factory for producing $10 billion SaaS companies. I think that was kind of a made up thing. Like, I don't think that's real. And I think VC is realigning in a lot of ways. You know, our creator investing, the financial model, like in the end of the day, people care about financial models and you can model it out. And the reality is if you invest in a creator who's doing half a million dollars and, you know, ad revenue and marketing deals, has a bunch of followers in a vertical. And on a 10-year basis, you're pretty sure that your investment, you can be paid back on, but you can give them a few million dollars up front to help them build some new businesses and start some verticals. It becomes a very safe investment and a good one for everyone because the creator gets a lot of capital to go do what they need to do. Like a lot of these guys, you know, if you make half a million dollars a year as a creator, after taxes, you're making a quarter million dollars a year. That's assuming it's all profit. It's not all profit, right? Like you're doing okay, but you're not crushing it, right? It doesn't give you a lot of capital to then go invest in building up what you could build up. And so if you could have a few million dollars, right, from a, someone like us and understand that like it's a fair deal, like you'll be able to make, let's pretend for 5%, like you'll make way more than 5% more in your career. We get paid back, we have upside, then everyone's happy, right? And I think that's like a big opportunity for everyone. Yeah, and I think the model's super interesting also because like you're saying for creators, maybe monetizing in the early stages, if they're especially if they're vertical, might be harder. And there's there's a lot of expenses too, right? Creating content, you've got to create content, you might need a content team, you're distributing on a whole bunch of different platforms, you're ever present to your audience. So like there are operations in play there. Um I'd be curious, Sam, uh I know you mentioned the example of like the 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 chess in, in Iowa, for example, but are there any other sort of creators that you guys have backed with this model that you can speak to and what kind of ver- yeah, vertical? like a dozen or so creators at this point. And I'm always touchy because I can't remember who I'm allowed to mention and who I'm not <laughs> like in flight. But like we've backed a lot of people in different verticals, you know, doing things that are like pretty vertical. Yeah. Right. It's like it's going to be, you know, it's like lawn care or like used cars or like, you know, specific niches where they have real expertise. And like you've the fun part about it is you guys have never heard of these people. Right. Like you're not like but they're really big in what they do. And like, that's actually my favorite is with the internet is it does allow for so much diversity, right? That for people who are truly passionate about what they do, they can have a huge following and a ton of influence and a lot of loyalty and candidly be able to build great businesses on the back of that. But like your, your mom has definitely never heard of them, right? Like, and that's cool, right? Compared to like the era of Tom Cruise, right? Where it's like, there's six celebrities, you've heard all of them, and they're all kind of in the newspaper checkout, and then sorry, the, the gross supermarket checkout lane, right? So I think it's cool. Yeah. And I'm curious on on that note, like what um what particular verticals get you excited? Like, are there any, are these things that you're looking to build software in? Are they like physical products? Are they marketplaces? 
No, I mean, like, we think, look, they, there are things that are more, like, well, like, it's like a marketplace wouldn't be a vertical, right? A marketplace is much more like a product you might put into a vertical. Like, you could have a lawn care marketplace. Specifically, we will give a shitload about lawn care, right? Like, or like juggling, right? Like, there's like a whole juggling community, right? Turns out, like, bigger than you think. People are really into juggling. It's like, you and I are not into juggling. You couldn't tell me anything about juggling, but like, the, you know, like, that world is bigger than you think. And then there's a question of what business model do you apply? There might be software businesses, there might be merchandise, there might be products, there might be DTC things, there's all sorts of things you can build. But the whole idea is to think about the audience first, the community first, and the product second, right? And acknowledge the fact that one of the things that VCs and generalists in general are very bad at covering, right, is the fact that like, you don't just like open the newspaper and see these things. Like you have to actually be able to network and map lots of these things and be open to very weird shit. You're like, holy shit, there's 10 million people that fucking love, I don't know, painting mini minifigures. Like, it's a, you know what I mean? Like, that's sweet. Like, what type of minifigures? Who's the person they trust and what paints to buy? Like, that's kind of the beauty of an infinitely large world, you know? It's just funny you mentioned that because I, so my dad had a Jeep and then I realized how much money people were spending on Jeep and Jeep parts. And I saw there was a huge opportunity in media there. So I'm, I'm building something like um, just creating a bunch of content around all Jeep stuff for that community. But like, what do you think, what does this look like playing it out if all this works? Is every co-founder going to require to have an audience and distribution or some sort of community? Um, I don't know. Not every, but I would say this, which is like to your point about CAC hacking, right? The ultimate CAC hack is to already own the audience, right? Now, how you did that, you might have taken you years of hard work to build that audience or you're just like an incredibly charismatic person in that community. But like I've written a bunch about like cult capitalism, right? It's kind of the way I think about it. And I think that is the era we're entering where like, again, it's not that you would like a firm requirement. Could, will there ever be things the product is so good that like it doesn't matter. It's like you've figured it out, right? Like it's going to work. You, you, the audience will come to the product. Yeah, of course that'll happen, right? But like I think a lot more might be, look, you know the audience super well because you've built a community with them for years and the community building goes into the thing you have before you build the product, right? It just reminds me of like SaaS being, you know, building a SaaS without a technical co-founder is very hard. I sort of see this as the technical founder version of, of, of commerce in the future. I mean, it's reasonable. I mean, like, well, look, in the end of the day, it's like, you know, examples from my own life. It's like, you know, my wife has founded a publication. It's actually 10 years old today called The Information, right? It's a subscription publication that focuses on tech. It's a very successful business, right? Like they break a ton of the news that goes global and mainstream for, for the world. You know, it's been profitable every year since the first year it was founded, right? Um, you know, she would not, she was a creator. She wrote a thousand articles for the Wall Street Journal, I think, before she left to start her own publication. But I would say like, could anyone have started The Information then? Probably not. Like, I think she was able to get her early subscribers because she already had like an implicit community around what she was doing. Right. And like from there, you still grow a lot. But I think that like kernel is extremely important. Right. And so I think that is like, you think about authenticity of business, like what you're a founder, what are you going to start? Right. Like, what are you going to do? I do think that starting things is super hard. I think starting things requires a ton of passion, right, for what it is that you do. And so I think if you said to me, hey, in the future, because of the CAC advantage, because of the reality you want founders who are super passionate about their space, et cetera, you'd almost want to say as an investor, hey, like, what's your community footprint? Like, what, like, why is anyone going to trust you as like a key input to investing in a business? That makes sense to me, right? In terms of where you would go. Um, now, again, will there be, there are always exceptions, 
but I think that I think it's a good and, and I think it's a healthy thing, honestly, because I think on the flip side, if you think about it, you know, what it means is you can't be a Johnny come lately who kind of fritters around and like runs a business school case and decides that like, I don't know, like, I don't know, used carburetors is a good market. Like you're not the used carburetor guy, like some other guy is the used carburetor guy who's like authentic to the community. Right. And I think that'll be a much more interesting investment. The, the reason I asked that is because I'm trying to get in the mindset of like, if, if my expertise and my factory line as a, as a DTC operator, which we'll talk about the VC factory line. Um, but as a, as a DTC operator, what does my five, 10 next years look like? Um, it's a, like, should I be building my audience? Because for example, if you even look at like the surfing industry, like creators, like, um, Kite will now, you know, they're surfer first, but like Kai Lenny, like he's more likely to build the next Quicksilver than like a great DTC operator starting from scratch or even like a competitor surfer. Like the, the, the money is flowing to the surfers that have the audience even over the number one competitor surfer. And so like if I was the operator, you know, in that space, I would just be thinking, where should I be thinking about my five to 10 upcoming years? I, I, I think that, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think it's a good insight. And that's why I like doing these sometimes you have like good conversations. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, I think you're right. If you're a thing like, if you've historically defined yourself as a DTC like guy and you're like, you don't give a fuck what it is you're making, you're the D, you're going to make DTC shit and like do some segmentation and push ads on Facebook and make money selling widgets. I do think that you're going to be very under leveraged right, without a creator um, to work with who actually owns the audience. Like, your marginal advantage is not that great. And by the way, there's a lot of you, right? So, like, if you think of it as a human, it's, like, not... I think you probably... If, if I were being strategic about it, our DTC creator, I would think about it to myself. It's, like, well, what community do I actually get, care about? Like, this is not, like, you know, this is not Alibaba trading. Like, like what community do I care about? And, like, do I want to spend a bunch of time in and building around and like that becomes the place you double down and you have to kind of have your own footprint and, and trust in that community right in order to be able to survive yeah i think the trust component is so big and going back to the two things you mentioned trust and authenticity that takes me to my next question where is where do you see ai playing into the creator sphere right like i think we were, we're already starting to see a couple like ai generated influencers that are like doing their brand deals and you know, obviously there's people in the background running those, but like if you were to take a, a slightly longer term view of that, does anything change or is AI just an extension of a creator who's manufacturing that persona? I mean, I think that it's going to be very hard for people to trust AI characters um, like long term, like I mean, in the way we're talking. About. I think AI can be very entertaining, right? And so I think the Kardashian should worry about AI. I think Mr. Beast should worry about AI because it's just it's entertainment so like that type of stuff i think you, you know is a ai will be a challenge for pure entertainment um i think ai will make everyone more efficient right so like the ability to like profitably at least for a while until someone else catches up run your content business because of ai like your photo touching up idea generation whatever it is gets easier sure you know like there'll be leverage in that right but i i don't um and and i do but i don't think beyond entertainment there's going to be like a major suck effectively of AI. Like I think what you'll find is that people still want to trust other humans. Um that and that's gonna be a very hard bond. Um that will be a durable bond. Because you know, the big difference is like so you get mad at a robot. The robot doesn't care. Like you 
it's, it doesn't matter, right? And so like it's it, they're very good for entertainment. Be like, hey, what carburetor should I buy? Like, I don't know. I, I think what you'll find is like the really sticky communities will still be based very much around humans uh, for the foreseeable future. And AI will make things more efficient and will be an entertainment uh, propellant more than anything else, right? Like the, the quote unquote AI influencers like that seem to be working are like effectively hot girl influencers. And like, yes, I think like if you're, if your claim to fame was supposed to be hot girl, um, you already exist in an incredibly competitive landscape and like AI will make it even more competitive, right? We are really excited to announce that DTC Pod is officially part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals. And we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. It's, um, I like what you mentioned that, you know, it's the, the leverage within AI, it's not necessarily to like build the AI character or build the AI tools, isn't just using the AI technology to operate more efficiently. Even if you're a DTC founder, um, it's not necessarily to pivot into AI. It's like using the AI tools to run the business now, just you yourself with better margins, um, et cetera. And so how does AI play into commerce? Like how does marketing change when my AI, whatever agent or whatever is actually doing my purchases for me? Like do brands then need to market to AI? Like, I don't know. I think we're a long way away from that. Like, look, again, I think we can use my, I've read the science fiction too, and it's old, right? From the eighties. We all have agents. They run around negotiating for us. It's like, before you go on a date, your AI robot talks to my AI robot and we negotiate to see if we're the right match. Like, I get it. And like, I don't want to be too cynical about it because like, I think there's some grains of truth to it. But if I were a DTC founder in 2023, I would not be preparing for that, right? I would be thinking about building an authentic community that was durable, that actually liked me and like is a voice, you know, trusted my voice and you'll be fine. You'll be able to create great stuff, right? And like, you don't have to worry about AI agents negotiating with each other on any reasonable time. And then what about the platform? I know we talked about it earlier, but um, is there any platform that like really excites you? Like, or how as a, a brand operator, if you're like, I want to be creating content, how do you decide where you can be most authentic with your audience between, you know, like TikTok? Well, same one takes one TikTok banned, I believe. So, <laughs> well, I, I think TikTok should be banned. I don't, I like to be clear. I think TikTok is a great product. It's incredibly entertaining. I think it's like the fact that it's fundamentally a Chinese company you know, and the kind of history of the Chinese Communist Party messing with apps for their own political and like, you know, military ends in the current world is very challenging. So if you see the issues we've had around open AI and governance and FTX and governance, it's like an obvious problem, right? So it's not that I don't like TikTok. I just don't think it like, I think it's a national security problem. Were, were you at Facebook when China banned Facebook? Was that well, during your time? I never allowed Facebook. Didn't they allow it for a little bit and then they like banned it and they created like a, a spinoff that was like the exact same thing called Run Runners? I think that's... Uh, to be honest, this is such an ancient history. I don't even remember. But like if it was allowed, it was only allowed for a hot second. I don't think it was ever really allowed in China. There was always a lot of conversation about how to get into China, right? Um, and excitement about that. But not um, not not the other way around. 
And do you have any insight into like why in the U.S. like for for China, all the U.S. platforms that tried to do business in China, it was like a no brainer. China was just like, nope, not doing business. We're going to clone and like do our own thing because of probably some of the same concerns that they would have. Right. Like we don't want the West influencing us. So uh, yeah, which is totally I mean, like not pleasant in a globalized world, but like it's not irrational. Right. So I feel like we're finally getting I mean, people have been talking about the TikTok ban for forever now. Do you think it's ever going to actually happen or w- w- what do you see unfolding for TikTok specific? I mean, it, it's a much longer conversation. It's probably not the topic of this podcast. I do think I don't think it's an unreasonable thing. I think it's challenging because I think the reality is TikTok has positioned itself very well in the U.S. with, you know, they're on Apple, but Apple is hugely beholden to China. Right. Like Apple could ban them, they won't, right? They have a bunch of American investors who are like, I can't, you know, that are big democratic donors. So they're like, they're not gonna go and be like, we should get rid of it, because like they'll lose millions of, or billions of dollars, right? So it's like it's interest it's inserted itself in a very challenging way. But it is a national security problem and hopefully the government will do its job and figure that out. Look, in terms of like the actual question you asked, which is like what platforms invest in? I mean, I'm gonna give a very boring answer, which is like it's wherever the people, your community actually wants to hear from you. Like it's it's like you know, there's all sorts of community, I mean, like, you know, again, like the information email, right? Like it's always been email, 10 years of email, there'll be another 10 years of email, right? Like email is sweet, right? Um, you know, for some people, it'll be, you know, X for some people, it'll be or Twitter, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, you know, for some people, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's, there's no right answer. I don't think there's any one platform that's right. I think you go where your team is, you know? The, the one interesting part though, is like email and, and, and podcasting with RSS and all that are like the one the few distribution points that aren't platform dependent. Yeah, but they kind of are. Like, you're right, they're less platform dependent, but like email deliverability, especially in the era of everyone in Gmail or whatever, is not a non-zero problem, right? With other inboxes, et cetera. Podcasts, eh. I mean, I, I think the rather than talking about it as like platform dependence versus platform independence, I think you have to think about it as a spectrum of platform risk. Everyone thinks a platform, right? And like, I think that there's no question that you can be in platforms that are higher risk, higher reward, right? Like TikTok is a very high risk platform, right? Uh, based on the format. They don't even have, really have a follow model. It's like kind of they show them, at you, you are shown at their pleasure, right? Um, and they can just decide to not show you whenever they feel like it, right? Um, you know, that's very different than a follow model. That's very different than all sorts of things. So I think you just have to think about, you know, what what's your poison, you know? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So Sam, I'm curious, um, in terms of slow ventures, like what is it that gets you guys excited when, in terms of consumer, like not necessarily DTC, because I know you invest in mostly software. So like when it comes to consumer, we've done plenty of DTC okay. years, right? It's not that we haven't. I mean, I think it's a definitely a difficult thing to get us to do these days, but it's not that we don't do it. I mean, look, we, we always, we generally want to invest in things that other people think is bad ideas, right? Because that's where all the mar- it's very simple, right? Which is, if you're investing in things that everyone thinks is a good idea, as an investor, it's probably a bad investment, right? Because the reality is it'll be priced as a thing that everyone agrees is a good idea, right? And then like, that's usually overvalued because people tend to overestimate how good ideas things are, right? If you find things that you think is a good idea, that everyone thinks else is a thing is a terrible idea, that's where we've made all of our money consistently, right? Like, you know, every investment that I'm really proud of or that we've made a real amount of money on has always been a thing where everyone else had great reasons to say it was a bad idea, but it wasn't, right? And so for me, I think that's kind of the mentality. You know, that's why we invest in creators now. Like, we won't do creator companies. People come in, they pitch, you know, buy, you know, this thing that this creator created, 
And like, look, I think it's great. You know, I, I would not invest in those, right? It's way too dependent on the creator's whims, right? Of like what they're interested in. Like we saw what happened with Mr. Beast Burgers a year ago. It was the coolest thing anyone had ever seen. Now it's dead. Because like Jimmy decided that other things were more interesting and it was too hard, right? And so like, I think investing in creator businesses, which a lot of other people are doing, there are exceptions where I think in general is a bad idea. But I think investing directly with in creators holistically, right? At a seed stage, which we are doing, I think we're like the only people doing it, right? And so like, that's an interesting business. So for me in the DTC world, it's like, look, DTC is not a cool world right now. Like no one wants to be in DTC. DTC is fucking hard and like not in a sticky and like, you know, look, we were seed in Casper. We were seeding a lot of DTC companies. And, you know, I, I actually seeded personally back in the day Birchbox, right? Which is one of the first, subscri- I mean, it was the first subscription box concept for consumers. And like, so I, like we've been around it forever and, you know, most of them have failed. Some of them work. Um, they're hard venture investments. If someone had a really great one, we'd look at it. But part of the reason we look at it is because everyone else hates it. And- Kind of piggybacking off that, could you tell tell us a little about bit about like slow and how you think about seed? Because I think a lot of your focus, like you were saying, is you're looking for opportunities where um, you know maybe the the whole market doesn't see it. You've got a lot of upside businesses that can produce a bunch of cash and maybe a way that isn't so predictable. So how do you th- how do you guys at slow think about? Um, the seed stage and, and and the types of companies to invest in? Look, it's always been evolving. We want to be in companies where like, you know, we see it and others don't, as you said. And like, you know, we've had a lot of success with that. Um, I think the evolving thing for us also is like, you know, we're really not excited about businesses that are pitching us for seed capital with a plan about how to get to their series A. You know, that's that's for, for, for years. You know, you, every seed- A milestone. We this many dollars to get a million dollars in revenue. And then once we have blah, 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 Series A. And like, look, we did get up mea culpa. We did some of that shit too. I get it. It's what the market was. But like the world has moved on to actually a much better and more rational place. We say, how much money do you need to build a great business? Maybe you get a Series A. Maybe you get offered more capital and that helps you grow faster. Maybe you get offered and you don't want to take it. But like, how do you get to the place you have a good business that you actually want to work on? Right? I think that's like the key question. I think, you know, that really requires introspection because it means that you can't be the type of person who's like, starts with, I want to build a business and then like searches around and finds an angle. And so you're going to be like, like, what do I want to do? Right. And like, how much money do I need to do that thing? And then like, if it's actually authentic and works and you're excited to work on it for a long period of time, you can have great outcomes, you know? Does that include a, I'm curious on AI because you have your, you have your thesis on the big five sort of capturing most of the share of the value of AI, so you guys are not investing in AI. Yeah, pretty much not. I mean, like they're they're ironically, we've invested in a bunch of companies a long time ago that are actually effectively AI companies, right? So like things like Otter, you know, the note taking app we seeded a bajillion years ago. It's a great company. It's AI, right? Like there are things like that that like we are involved in. But if you know, when someone comes and pitches us an AI company, we probably just in our heads are almost like, okay, like if it's a nice person, we will talk to them. But it's like an instant pass because like. Someone else will pay more. And like it's too of the moment. It's too cool. It's too hard to see what's real and what's not. And the reality is almost none of it's real. Um, there are exceptions, but like almost none of it. Um, I will say the, the exception to me saying that is I have had a few founders come to me and say, look, I keep telling everyone this is an AI company because it's what they want to hear, but it's not really an AI company. And I'm like, well, you probably should tell people what it actually is. But that said, like the, 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 there is a company 
I won't name names that that recently we did do that I think is a very exciting company that um, it literally was like they pitched themselves to a bunch of people as an AI company. And I was like, we don't we're not going to do it. And like they're like, well, it's not really an AI company. Like, okay, well, explain what you mean. Let's talk about what it really is and kind of go from there. Um, and Sam, kind of as we wrap up here, one of my last questions about business model things that um, you know you were you'd alluded to uh, in your deck that I kind of wanted to get your perspective on was the kind of the franchise model, right? And the new fu- the the future for that. Like, how does the franchise model play into your thesis and and what you see from these like more vertical communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that like so we we have invested. I am very excited about franchises. Few reasons: one, other VCs hate franchises. Great, that helps, right? Two, um, you know, as capitalism, when capital is cheap, you're just like, well, I'll just do the same thing, but I'll just own all the stores myself. Like, why do I need a franchise, right? When capital is scarce, all of a sudden franchises make more sense. And then three, I think this is kind of maybe the most intellectual and honestly the most important part of this, which is, look. I think creating platforms which allow tons and tons of people to invest their own sweat equity and money in something and feel real ownership of it and be the leader in their community of that thing is a really powerful model, right? Like, And so that's fundamentally what franchises can be. It can be a type of thing where you make it easy for someone who wants to really work hard and also like potentially wants to co-invest with you to demonstrate that and then build a community locally that they're really proud of, that they enjoy working and that provides value to the community and then be aligned with that. And so like, you know, to me, I think one of the things that has happened with big tech is that it's made a very small number of people very, very, very rich, right? That's fine. I'm like a ardent capitalist. I don't blame, and not only do I not blame those people, I'm psyched for them, like good for them. Like they did a great job. Like I'm not, you know, I'm the furthest from Bernie Sanders you're going to get. I will say, however, then I think the country would be way better off minting tens of thousands of new millionaires versus a handful of deca billionaires. Like that would be a healthier thing for the country, right? Um, you know, more people have real skin in the game and they're invested and they're proud of their leadership and things like that. And and I think I think the franchise model has the ability to do that when when the stars align, right? So we are very excited about franchises. I think it fits into this kind of community-driven business mentality. Um and hopefully can create a lot more people who are doing fabulously well and have super awesome Where do you see the, uh, like, what's the manifestation of franchise businesses? Because most uh, most franchises, as we know them, are like, you know, physical retail sort of plays or like fast food chains or that sort of stuff. Do you see like digital franchises popping up a lot or? You know, people, it's an interesting question. You know, the, the franchise models we've done are still ultimately, they might be tech platforms or have tech component. But they are ultimately still fairly locally driven, right? They're like, you know, a local farm or like a local fitness thing or, you know, things like that. So I I agree with you. I have been pitched versions of purely digital franchises many times. I like the first, I like that as an idea. I haven't been able to piece together yet places where that makes a ton of sense, right? Um, I So I don't know. I think like it's... um. It might be how you look at these things. I might not just have seen the right one yet. It might be one of those things that sounds like a good idea, but when you dig into it, it just doesn't actually work. Um, I would love it to work intellectually, though. I love that. Um, Ramon, you were going to say something? Yeah, I, 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 this might be too loaded of a question, maybe, as we wrap up, but um, this just reminded me of like the Constellation software angle that you talk about. Constellation. So, um, you know, I think for, for Blaine and I, like we relate to this a lot because... 
we've um we've raised venture capital we've we've gone through the whole thing we've seen years pass by and you know barely in my case like it's it's not guaranteed you're gonna make cash you're gonna make money as a founder you you bust for like five years plus um and so now in a year we started our own company and are seeing more cash in like one year than than i was able to see for a few years and so we're like, all right, then we can rerun this over and over and we can serve the same user base and community over and over. They're telling us what they want. We know what we need to build. Um, and so I'd love to hear your, you know, what you see as Constellation software, because if anything, Blaine and I can get some some insights here. Um, so sorry, ask the question again. I don't I, I get I. Yeah. yeah so so where, where is the opportunity in, in Constellation software and like um how, how does constellation software really like um differ from say a studio model uh well i think um sorry i think the answer really is that they're just stacking cash flows right like that's the difference studio models right. stack cash flows studio models try to invent lots of new things that look similar and spin them out right like and then some of them work and some of them don't it's like the opposite of a studio model is what a constellation is and i love it i think it's great um, huge fan of yeah. Sweet. Well, Sam, wanted to thank you for coming on. We had a great time. Um, and for our listeners, where can yeah, where can they connect with you? I know you've got a pod. You write a lot on Twitter. At lesson. Well, no, it's always at my, Twitter is at lesson. I I like to tweet because you know that's what you do if you're a venture capitalist. Um, and then yeah, we have a great podcast, <laughs> more or less, with the morons and the lessons. Um, you should listen to it. We bullshit about technology every week. Um, and interesting topics of the day. And I don't know. That's just like lesson in most places. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.